Listening to Woman with Ambition, and I'm your host, Sanya Abdullah Close. My guest tonight is an accomplished writer, an undeterred researcher, a humble human being, a fighter, and a woman with heroic spirit. She's bold, brilliant, and benevolent. She's a professor in the Security Studies program at Georgetown University. She's a political scientist who served at Rand Corporation. United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan, and USIP, a leading think tank in Washington, D.C. Her research focuses on political and military affairs in South Asia, including Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. Dr. Christine Fair. She's the author of several books. Her most recent book is on In Their Own Words, Understanding the Lashkari Taiba published from Oxford University Press in 2019. She's a frequent commentator at leading newspapers and magazines, including New York Times and Foreign Affairs, and she has made several appearances as an expert on television and radio programs like BBC, Al Jazeera, CNN, and Voice of America. She designed her membership with the International Institute of Strategic Studies and Council on Foreign Relations to protest its consistent failure to address diversity issues. She speaks and reads Hindi, Urdu, and Punjabi. Thank you, Dr. Fair. It's so wonderful to have you tonight. Well, thank you for having me. You've written so much, and you have traveled around the world. You're learning languages. Do you call yourself an academic nerd? Uh, so I don't have kids, and um, I'm very lucky in that I like what I do. And then um, something very surprising. Um, I actually married a man who was incredibly supportive. Um, I think a lot of women report that their productivity goes down when they get married because, uh, bluntly speaking, they end up doing all of the domestic production as well as uh, their their uh, professional stuff. And that really didn't happen with me. Um, I actually became more productive when I got married. Um, that is good. And also just statistically anomalous. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's very so, true, actually. Um, I, I cannot speak for uh, most of the Western women I've met uh, because most I've been in America like just four or five years ago and my friendships are limited. Uh, but uh-huh. uh, people I've met, they are mostly fellows and usually, you know, in their dating phase or not married yet, or some were married, but with kids, like they were a little ahead of me in that stage. And when I got married uh-huh. to my husband, it was also uh, a nice experience in a way that I think I, I wanted to be with a person who could understand me. And that was a rare thing for South Asian men. And and nobody else than you could better understand because you have been in India, Pakistan very frequently. You have met people, you have friendships there. So 
you can understand that patriarchal societies men are not taught and i would also blame women for that but i would i mean but i would also just you know i'm i'm always sensitive to those discussions particularly as a white woman because i think now that you've been here in the united states um you see that we have the it, it's more of a variation in kind right. rather than degree right you know, it's here. Funny fact. So I had predominantly dated men of South Asia, um, and an occasional female from South Asia. Um, in part because I, you know, I just have an interest in South Asia, mm-hmm. and I wanted to, um, I wanted someone that could enjoy that interest in South Asia. But I found the mothers to be absolutely dreadful, like horrible, just mm. terrible. And I said, you know, I was like, you know what, screw this. I'm just going to like go to the NASCAR track and, and find a white guy. <laughs> but I got to tell you, man, it's not a Daisy mother-in-law thing. It's a mother-in-law thing. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I learned, you know, my mother-in-law, she said she called me white trash. I mean, she said. Oh, my God. I I almost left my husband over it because I also learned that it's not a Daisy man thing to not stand up to their mothers. It's a man thing. Ah, interesting. And, uh, yeah, my husband, I mean, he didn't, I mean, he, I was like, how can you let your mother call me white trash? I mean, first mm. of all, um, it is true that I'm from a poor white family, um, which I think gives me actually a lot of empathy um, for other people that experience different kinds of oppression um i mean it's not the same thing right class-based oppression if you're white is not the same as race-based oppression Mm. but but i do have a lot of empathy for people who are judged on on what their background is rather than who they are and i was like i said to my husband i would never let my family speak to you like that and so um i i was ready to divorce him and we ended up going to a couples counselor mm-hmm. and it's, I just learned it's not a Daisy Munda thing. It's a Munda thing. Mm, very interesting. Um, yeah, I did not had that. So my husband's parents are, I think he's raised by a strong woman in the home. <laughs> and uh, uh, when I, I got a very finished product, not a work in progress. <laughs> I was lucky in that way. Uh, his grandma, she's an amazing woman. Um, and actually, David's grandpa served in Pakistan for some time. He was in oh, the U.S. Oh, really? Air Force. Yeah, and that was actually the connection for us to get along because he's uh-huh. not from my field. And uh, oh, it's I rare see. to hear from someone um, about Pakistan knowing more cultural nuances. And he has never been there, but he knew a lot. And I was like, how did you know all this? And then he <laughs> told me that my grandpa was actually serving in the U.S. Air Force, but he lived in, in with his family uh, in Islamabad for two years in 70s. Mm. Granted that Pakistan 70s was very, very different from uh, what it is now. So but different. yeah, but it was at least uh, a good, I think, start for us to start dating. Uh, so he's very multicultural in that way, raised by a Jew father um, who was British national, came to America. So I think that gave me actually a good start uh, instead of uh, seeing the real American guy who was actually born and raised by, you know, um, both American parents uh, who have less exposure to the world. And he then traveled on his backpacking. So things became 
hmm. thankfully easier for me to uh, <laughs> start off. Uh, but I, I got a really very interesting perspective from you, and 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 just help us um, understand more about Dr. Fair because we have seen your writings. Um, I've been reading your work, I think, more than ten years. You so... poor thing! Oh my God, you, probably, <laughs> you need a you need medical assistance for that. Go get a novel. <laughs> And uh, it's it's I love your research style, the way you go in depth, the methodology, and and you know your strengths as a scholar. Um, but I, I would like to have you on this platform to help us understand, like when you were little, what was your dream, or did you have a dream? Like I, when I put myself in my childhood days, I was like I was a little girl. I didn't have like people say I wanted to become a doctor, blah blah blah. I don't remember I made such type of claims in my childhood. I, I was just playing, running around. I don't know what I was doing until I grew up in my teens when I realized like, okay, all of my brothers and sisters are doing something in their lives. You know, I want to pick up this field. I want to go here or there. So, what was your childhood like? What was the little, who was the little Christian Fair? So, I mean, I actually had a really horrible childhood. I mean, I was a, a victim of various kinds of childhood abuse. So I did not have dreams. I was, I had nightmares, um, literally. I still have night terrors, actually. So um, I was really just trying to survive. and. Um, I, I think, so, you know, again, going back to what a lot of people think is only a South Asia problem. Um, so I'm from, a, a, as I like to say, an archipelago of Dehati hell holes in, in mm. Indiana. And, um, so I didn't have a father. My father deserted me when I was an infant. Um, Mm-hmm. So I was, for the first part of my childhood, raised by a stepfather. And, you know, he would always say things like, mm-hmm. we only have money to educate one of the kids. And w- w- it doesn't make any sense to educate the girl. She's just going to go to college mm-hmm. and get a husband. Right. So this is the mm-hmm. kind of rubbish that I grew up with. And um, so, I, you know, I didn't really know what mm-hmm. life was going to have for me. But the one thing that was clear to me that I was going to do everything in my power mm-hmm. to not have the life of my mother. I did not want to get married. Um, I wanted to find some way to get educated. And as I got older, um, I figured out that the way out mm-hmm. was to just focus on my studies. And that also had the advantage of really being able to block out the miserable childhood that I had. I mean, just you name a kind of abuse and I, I had to suffer it. And I think, you know, my mom was no longer here to defend herself. She's dead. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, my mom, I think, again, I, I, I've seen this all over the world. It's not just South Asia. It's here. When you have women who are economically dependent upon men, they can't take care of themselves and therefore they cannot take care of their children. So my mother was, I would say she was doing her best, but her best was not good enough. Um, and, and, um, Mm -hmm. had I not been white and I know this, had I not been white, I would not have been allowed to remain in the home. 
I remember it, on a couple of occasions, I tried to commit suicide. I was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, why can't you people just remove me from this house? Why do I have to stay there? And they were really blunt about it. Um, you know, this is your your situation may be right. bad, but it's not as bad as it would be in foster care. Um, you just need to suck it up. And oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I later went to Rand, I, I did a project that was looking at how doctors think about when they should report childhood abuse and neglect. And one of the findings that was very stark in this study was that um, doctors assume that if you're white, um, your situation is not as bad as it's going to be if you're in foster care. But they, they tend to view black families as somehow being inherently more dangerous. Um, and so they're making this this very race-based value judgment on um, whether your biological household is more dangerous than foster care. And they're mm-hmm. more likely to think that um, black families are more dangerous. You're very right. I think with my limited exposure in the U.S., that is what I have learned more about these foster care homes yeah. and how kids have actually suffered. And, and it's very interesting what you have shared about your past that nobody could have actually guessed. I, I don't know. I mean, definitely people that are very close to you must have known this, but not in the wider academic community. Oh, no. I No, I've been actually very public oh, about okay. it. Um, yeah, because I think it's really important. I mean, I I don't, you know, I, I think it's really important that victims stop being um, and I don't, I don't get so obsessed about the word victim versus survivor. I do get obsessed over the fact that somehow those of us who have um, endured this, that somehow we are ashamed. I think that the shame yes. needs to be on, on the heads and the hands Others, of the abusers, yeah. not us. So true. And, and acceptance is the first way of, you know, first step towards healing. So the more we express our story, the more we talk about it. I think the more we are recovered and healed. So I'm going to tell you, as someone who, I don't believe in healing. Um, I think this is the first thing I tell people. There's no healing from this, um, especially for childhood abuse and mm-hmm. neglect. Um, and the reason for that is, is that um, I, I can never redo the experiment of what I would have been had I not been abused and neglected from the time I was a mm-hmm. toddler. Um and because as our brains develop, you know, there's this notion of brain plasticity, we're literally growing. Our brains are literally cooking in a soup of cortisol and other stress hormones. So I have um, those of us who have uh, been through this. Uh, and by the way, brain plasticity is well into your 20s. Mm-hmm. It's not something um, there's no magical age. It's a it's a distribution. So trauma that happens to people when they are young, before their brain is fully formed, this trauma doesn't heal. You, you're just a different person than what you could have or should have been. Um, the kind of, um, the, the things that make me comfortable mm-hmm. are things that are not typically normal, mm. right? So I tell people, 
um, I'm, I'm very upfront about it. it. It's, you're never healed. That, that, that is, I think that's the kind of stuff that people want to believe in because if you can, if you as a parent can say, well, one day my kid is going to be okay. Mm. Um, they'll be healed. It allows us to take both personal and societal responsibility and toss it out the window. Mm-mm. Because if you have to accept, for example, that what Trump did to those children, mm. that he stole, that he put in cages, mm. that he subjected to every variety of neglect and abuse, and in some cases adopted illegally uh, in what would be called trafficking if another country did it. Right. Um, those kids are never going to be okay. They are never going to know what life would have been like had this not happened to them. And so I always tell people, it's, you're never healed. You're, you're always trying to fix an airplane while you're flying it. Hmm. Very interesting and analogy. To, okay. Yeah, I got your you point. You have to accept it. Mm-hmm. You have to accept it. It's, sometimes you want to crash the airplane into a side of a mountain. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, uh, having co-pilots hmm. is a good thing. A <laughs> so so do you think that your past has a lot to do with your motivation be here where you are today so i think that as a kid the only thing i ever learned was to work academically um i was a i was overweight i had glasses and because i um, was sexually abused i had very severe body dysmorphia So I, I, I always felt more comfortable with books than I did people. Mm. And um, so I think there's just part of that. Like that, that always became my refuge is that when um, I was literally being kicked, <laughs> I just doubled down on the books. Um, mm. and so there's, you know, that's just, that was a coping strategy. Um, and I think that, but the, I think the, the more, obvious manifestation is that um i think at some point you make the decision to live mm. and you make the decision to say fuck you to the people who are abusing you and you make mm. that choice to stand up for yourself and that you're not going to be a victim again and i think that to anyone who knows me i don't give a fuck what people think of me Um, if you screw with me, I will come at you with everything that I have, because the one thing that you never have as a child, when you're in that kind of a situation, you're never allowed to develop a flight instinct because there's nowhere to go. Right. Right. So, you know, humans have three responses to trauma. One is to flee. One is to freeze mm. and one is to fight. So for a lot of yeah. childhood survivors, their instinct was to freeze like, and, mm. and they would uh, dissociate. So one of my cousins who we have a, we were both abused by her father. Um, she is a schizophrenic. She, um, she is, she is frequently homeless. Um, so her experience And her abuse was much worse than mine because in the end, her father, who abused both of us, murdered her mother and she had to find her murdered mother. Oh, um, my God. So, yeah, that's the other yeah, thing. Yeah, that's cycles. the trauma. It, mm. And it's the cycles because her she has children, her own children were traumatized by her because of her illness. 
but I didn't, I, my body was built differently in the sense that I didn't have a freeze instinct. I had a fight instinct. Mm. And um, it makes relationships with people very difficult because like my husband is like, why, why did you have to start that confrontation? I'm like, you don't understand. I didn't start the confrontation. This person, uh, this person began the confrontation and I'm not built to, to walk away from it. Right. So, Mm. you know, that it's very hard being a partner to someone like me. Um, It's easier to be a partner in some ways to someone who freezes because my husband's a freezer. When he is in conflict, he shuts down. But, you know, these are things that, I mean, this is all part of that flying an airplane and and fixing it while you're flying it. Mm. You know, it's just the way it is. So I have known people like my husband's best friend, childhood friend, and he had a difficult life from his childhood. Not in a, in not in terms of that he was you know sexually abused, but he felt abandonment because his mother was not involved and mm-hmm. his father left. He never saw him. But even now, when he's trying to go back and fix his, I can now from your conversation better understand, um, you know, why it is hard for him to move forward while the doors of the past are still open. And and what you talked about that yeah. healing thing. Because I was, it's very hard to understand people when you're not in their shoes. And and it's hard to relate because it you can never be in their shoes. Even if I try to empathize, there are limits to my empathy. Um, how a child has been through. It's, it's a process of uh, emotional tormentation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I can understand and feel that as an outsider who is trying to see America and a woman here, my worries are like, okay, woman here has at least a freedom to express. And that's the biggest thing that in our part of the world is is missing. Um, we do not even express what is going through. And half of the time, we don't know what is going on with us. And I have been through this, like I was, in American time, you can say it's gaslighting. You don't know what is going on, and, and there is less avenue to even go and talk to somebody, because I used to get this response, every marriage is the same, all men are alike, and, and you know, all that kind of a stuff that, you know, accept what it is, this is basically a shithole, just you got married, now accept it. And... And that is the beginning of letting yourself go, which I actually denounce. Like, I'm not meant for this and I cannot handle it. So how do you differentiate yourself from a woman living in other parts of the world? Did you feel that you had that freedom to express yourself? I really oppose this Western white feminism that likes to go Mm -hmm. around pointing at, oh, isn't it terrible to be a woman in India, right? Because um, I do not have the privilege of believing that being an American woman is awesome, Mm -hmm. right? So more than anything, what I would say is it's about economic independence. Mm 
Hmm. My grandmother was abused horrifically by my grandfather. My grandfather beat my own mother so severely he she almost lost an eye. And my mother could not simply be without a man, right? Because women in many places in this country still, they are dependent upon men. And, and until, I mean, that's why my mom allowed all of this crap to happen to me was because she was unable mm. to say no. The only time my mother ever objected to her husband brutalizing me was when my little brother was dying. I had a, an infant brother who was dying from Down syndrome, which was also a window into the cruelty of Americans. They were happy when my little brother died. Um, they accused my mother of that she must have been having an affair because, you know, um, John would never make a baby like this. Things that are not so different from what I hear in South yeah, Asia. Yeah, right? it's very similar. Um, and so so um, also the son privilege. Yeah. We can only educate one. So I happen to have a background where I, I when when people say, well, aren't you grateful to be an American mm -hmm. based upon all of your studies abroad? I'm like, actually, what I have been able to learn is that the condition of women in most places in the world are fundamentally the same. What makes America different than some places is that women can work. But there are European countries that actually protect women's labor rights mm. more ferociously. America is not great, actually. We don't have an equal rights amendment. We don't have any law yeah. that says you have to pay us equally. And I have my own stories. Even at Georgetown, I was hired at many years later um, at $10,000 below um, a man who was hired before me, even though I had significantly more experience. Now, Georgetown admitted this. Wow. Um, yeah, you were many years Yes, but they never fixed it. And I now, right? So I, I, I really, um, I, so I want to spend my time trying to educate people, mm -hmm. especially other Americans. Yeah. Like, this yeah. place isn't effing great. Yeah. You know, if you think it's great, mm. it's because you're either blind or you happen to have lived a life that has allowed you to yes, see absolutely. It, I think experience it. There's a lot of perception about everything about America is great. People live like a life which is, I mean, granted, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of freedom here from other countries, but you're right when you compare with Europe and other, like Australia even, uh, there are certain things that you find in other countries better um but i think maybe the hollywood culture <laughs> projected america in a in the eyes of others like growers and something which is but but i'm not receptive to those arguments either right because people you know when i watch a bollywood mm -hmm. film do <laughs> i mean we all have to suspend disbelief like when i go to india people are like well you know in hollywood films women are always <laughs> sluts I'm like, okay, in Bollywood films, women are always dancing in wet saris. <laughs> I mean, you know, can we please not be stupid? Yeah, that's not the reality. <laughs> right? So, I mean, I think people want to look for things that are really easy to explain. But, but the fact is, is that um, 
if you go to Appalachia or if you go to the south or if you go to urban areas, you'll see things, you know, there are food deserts, there are bank deserts, hmm. um, just because you, the same house that I have that's owned by a, a black person or a black family in a predominantly black neighborhood will be will have about 30% or more value deducted just and it's the same house the difference is it's black people who live mm. in it and um, those are the kinds of things that um, so when I so the comparisons that I most readily mm-hmm. come to when I think about the United States versus South Asia um, I think racism the closest thing in South Asia is um, like for example in India is the discrimination mm-hmm. that Muslims endure and also caste-based. Yeah. Well, we have that too. Right. It's just different that in Pakistan it is very subtle and baradri system gets in it, Punjabi versus non-Punjabis. Oh, and... oh I, exactly. So I would say the Pakistan comparison is is if you are not yeah. Punjabi. <laughs> <laughs> if you're Baloch. <laughs> That's exactly. Ethnically, or, it's very bad. Yeah. Very, very, if in, if you're not Punjabi, you are definitely second, third, and fourth class citizen. And if you are Pakistani and you are a Punjabi in the oh, army, yeah. you basically are a <laughs> Raja. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, because, so my parents are Punjabi and we grew up. <laughs> in 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 outside Lahore, basically, not in Lahore. All my cousins are. Yeah. Where? Oh, my where? father was. I born in Bahawalpur because he was posted there. So he actually, um, but he was posted there for a year, and and I took birth. And he was traveling around uh, Multan and and Bahawalpur, and then he settled in Islamabad because that's the place he said you know i resonate with we grew up my memories are from islamabad all our lives i felt from our cousins you know not treating us equals because we were not lahoris and uh, we could never understand what was the issue because we were more coddled we were more careful about using what kind of language we are using, um, how to be frank with other people's, like keeping the boundaries about it. And those were the things that they did not like with us. So we were we were treated discriminatory even in our own family. And that was the reason that none of us in my family members got married in, in, in the family. We did not gel. We had more freedom to talk in our homes. And this was something that they did not like. Like they always told my parents that you have given more liberty to your kids than it should be uh, given. But it's very interesting. I know that Pakistan is it's very discreet. And it was an interesting mix that how, you know, that people live up to the names in, in Pakistan, the owner of your last name, the Baradri that you're born in, and how you have to live up to that. And we saw all that and we were like, you know, F that. We don't believe in it. My father was not, my mother. So, but I have seen people living up to those in Pakistan too. And it's just, yes, racism is, I think, and classism is everywhere. It's just that it has a different shape and form, but 
it's it's just and, and light skin and dark skin oh in my South god Asia. I know. <laughs> oh my. that's another oh my thing gosh. so in uh, in the summers <laughs> i get kind of tan so it, it always happens when i'm in south asia in the summer some idiot tries to sell me bleach cream and i'm like <laughs> there's some what is that? Uh, fair and lovely and and still and now <laughs> And then there's now Shah Rukh Khan is pimping out fair and handsome. Yeah, but it is true. It's uh, so many girls in Pakistan that they don't get married because the expectation is that she is dark skin. She will not <laughs> give birth to a child who would be lighter skin. So the generation, it's not less than what Turkey did long, long ago, uh, killing all the offsprings who were darker skin. And I... I it's appalling when I see that. It's like, yes, we are we're still colonial in our mindsets, uh, yet we yeah. don't like that, and <laughs> we're still in the past. I don't, I don't understand it. But you, as you know, also here, um, African American community also has these issues. Um, yeah. like, you can buy bleach cream here in the states. I mean, I first learned about bleach cream when I lived in Chicago. So it, it's just another way of making women in particular feel shitty about their bodies. If yeah. <laughs> yes. you might be beautiful and have a, a perfect body. Oh, but you know what? Again, tum kali ho. Yes. They will find a reason to pinch from body <laughs> yes. shaming. Oh my Absolutely. God. The, the latest I thought I was going to have a heart attack over was apparently now we have to have thigh gap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, for fuck's sake. I'm going to give you some thigh gap. <laughs> I actually to... thought about it, too. And then I gave up the idea soon after I realized that, you know, this this requires a lot of hard work. Uh, it's I... photo... Well, it's Photoshop, for one thing. All of these adverts. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, you've got little 12-year-olds with, with Particularly. You know, Photoshopped thigh gap in the Target swimsuit ads. Like, oh, for crying out loud. Yeah, it's Instagram pictures. And I'm glad that some women are actually telling before and after. It's like not a before and after. It's just holding your breath and after <laughs> releasing your yeah. breath. It's not even that. Um, I don't know. And do you do you feel that you're satisfied with your accomplishments? Or do you feel that you need to do more? Do you feel that you have done your ambition? Or you feel like there is unfinished business? I mean, I don't think like that. I just like what I do. And so um, I, I'm really lucky that I'm a professor. So I have a lot of flexibility in what I mm. study and how I study it. And I really like teaching. So it's, I don't, I mean, I, I don't, I just don't think that way. Mm -hmm. If I didn't like what I did, I, I'd do something else. Did you um, ever thought about coming in politics? Hell no. <laughs> Hell no. No, I mean, my dream actually, you know, if I had not, if I had not been financially constrained, I mean, I did a PhD because PhDs are free in the U.S. If, if I hadn't been financially constrained, um, I would have wanted to become a veterinarian. Oh, yeah. I've seen your love for dogs. Yes, I'm obsessed with animals. Um, so if, if, if I could um, re-roll the dice, um, Maybe I would have done that, but mm. I wasn't financially constrained. I mean, I had a lot of financial constraints. So 
which, which interesting enough, I mean, I'm not very sympathetic to this movement where people are like, oh, forgive my student loans. It's like, you know, you made choices. Most of these loans are not for tuition. A lot of it is for lifestyle choices. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I live poor, you know, I ate in those days, the generic products were literally in black and white boxes. I ate generic everything. Um, I took a bus to go to the grocery store um, that was many, many miles away from my house because I could afford it. You know, I yeah. I don't have a lot of sympathy for this culture of students that don't want to be poor. I hear that from my husband too. He's like, I did not part was not part of party life because I was saving my money. So yeah. he also believes that it's a yeah. choice that uh, you have to make. And he used to tell me that he was, you know, making ramen noodles and trying to eat what minimum budget he could spend, which makes me understand that, yeah, I, I can understand exactly. what you're saying. And in, yeah, that's exactly how yep. Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that I'm, I'm talking to you. I, honestly, I have not known personal life of yours and, and this can help so many girls who are listening right now. We have, I think, barriers in front of ourselves sometimes thinking, oh, this much happened with me and I cannot do that or, or I, I'm not capable of doing that. But you don't buy that survivor narrative, but I, I see you as shining and, and surviving. And, and Oh, no. Oh, no. It's not that I don't buy the narrative. I just don't. I, I also, I, I, I think calling, I, what I object to is trying to say, oh, we weren't victims. We're yes. survivors. No. Right. We're both victims and we're survivors. We wouldn't, you know, why I, so the, there's nothing to survive if you weren't a victim. Right. And so I, I have some opposition to right okay i got it right now not using the word victim um that's my that's my issue like i don't like the i don't like the expression me too i like the expression him too yes equality why do i need yeah he's i don't need to know another woman victim i want to know who the perpetrator is so i can avoid him (laughs) (laughs) that's so i felt in my work life in pakistan a very um a uh, strong opposition from women and i half of the time it was unable for me to understand uh in the young age what is going on like uh, i was academically nerd but i was not a hijabi girl usually pakistan is about okay the girls who are good in studies are mostly very you know covered up and they're mostly from conservative backgrounds because that is probably their impetus to work hard. I don't know. Uh, the toppers in our class were in our, I, I remember in our university at that time. And still, when I started teaching, I saw the same trend were mostly conservative in their outlook. And I faced that backlash for being not fitting into that frame. Uh, and more so with my, female teachers uh, who later on became my colleagues and the stigmas that is that was attached to me was like oh, she's getting the benefit of her looks and honestly by Pakistani standards I have not got any looks I'm not fair skin the one with the military background that was that is still an important thing uh, or for foreign office background and I was from a very self-made background which I'm I'm proud of but did you face anything from your female colleagues backlashing? Well, I mean, females, I think, are often not supportive of other women. 
and they'll find whatever excuse, um, you know, to demean women. Um, but, but I think the issue is this, it's like when we're all fighting for the crumbs of the patriarchy, mm. um, we are forced into a competition with each other mm. and, um, and any advantage that um, a woman gives to another woman is seen as less opportunities for her. So I've, I think all of us have experienced this. We've all known that woman who's been a complete asshole to us. Um, and I would still say that the people who have, um, with the exception of sexual harassers, the people that have been most unsupportive of me have been women. Um, and like I said, you know, you can, you can blame them. Um, it's easy enough to do, but I think it's better to understand that we're all competing for the the crumbs of the patriarchy. And there are some of us that want to smash the patriarchy so that we're not competing for those crumbs. Um, and there are other women who find that they benefit from their status relationship with powerful men. Um, for example, that would explain um, a lot of the white male, the white female Republicans, right? Mm. They, mm. they are very happy with the status quo. Um, yeah. because of their white privilege. And mm. if you throw on top of that, these Christian women um, who also derive pleasure in enforcing Christian bullshit. Um, so they they derive a sense of social empowerment from being white man's number two. So I think there's stories, uh, versions of this story all over the world. Well, that's a very yeah. That's that's a very balanced way of looking at it because I honestly felt like, can women ever think about each other and stop being bitch to each other instead of thinking that we are few? And given in in the national security or politics debate, we are very few. But it makes me always hard to understand that the less we are, the more competitive we are. And uh, the more we are fighting with each other instead of uh, being, I'm not a, I'm not a us versus they kind of a person in woman versus men field, but I'm just like, at least try to support each other when we know that they are very few and everyone is struggling in their own ways, in their homes, in the patriarchal society. I mean, I'll, but, give, I'll give you an example of how that's easier said than done, right? So I think when I was younger, like you, I was very judgmental as I've become older. Um, mm -hmm. I'm so when I was in graduate school, I was sexually harassed by this famous man, Depeche Chakrabarty. Um, mm -hmm. I complained the very day it happened. I wasn't having any of it. I complained to two deans and I complained to our departmental chairman. Um, as I very quickly learned, no one gave a shit, but I had mm. basically made an enemy of this very powerful person and I was never going to have the career. Um, that an ordinary South Asianist would have, right? I was never gonna be mm. teaching Hindi literature at a university. Um, so I had to do something else for my for my living, which is why I went and did a policy degree. I had to basically, I had to redo my career um, because I had taken this asshole on. Mm. Oh, um, other women in my program were, um, they knew he was a pig, but they yeah. wouldn't support me. Yeah because they didn't want to alienate yeah. them, right? So they kept their head down. 
But then there was another woman who took it even further. She was in my, we weren't in the same cohort. We were in overlapping cohorts. She married him. Oh and she, and he he uh, got her a tenure track job at the University of Chicago, which was completely unethical because he was also shagging her when he was the chair of her committee. And so uh, you look at the array of responses. Mm. Um, most people who stand up to their abusers, I'm just blunt about it, they're the ones who pay the price. Yeah. The vast majority of women who stand up. Oh, you know what? Actually, I have to go. Thank I have to take. Okay, this call. thank you so much for All your right. time. No, 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 no. Thank you. And and we'll talk All soon. Right. Thank you, Doctor Fair. All right. Take thank care. Thank you. Okay. Bye, bye. We talked with Doctor Fair more than we planned to take her time, but it was so interesting to listen her powerful journey. Listening to her childhood journey gave me goosebumps. She is a brave woman, as I said in the beginning. The contact details of Doctor Christine Fair and her bio is attached in my show notes. I learned so much today. I learned that women all around the world, even in America, suffer from similar circumstances. I learned we are not alone. Thank you for listening, Women with Ambition. We'll be back soon with another amazing story. Till then, bye-bye.